Welcome to the Academy of Esports Podcast. I am your host, James O'Hagan, and this week I have the pleasure of welcoming in Stephen Reed. Now, Stephen is coming to me from the future. He is in Edinburgh, Scotland, where I am in the States. Stephen, thank you for being a guest on the Academy of Esports Podcast today. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me here. Absolutely. And your your our paths crossed uh, several years. Gosh, it feels like several years ago, though. I think it was only about two, maybe now, mm. uh, when we met at the Minecraft Fair in Schaumburg, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Uh, you had come to speak. And uh, I, I remember just working the stage because I was I think I was doing support for you that day and just mm. enthralled with everything you were saying and the message you were presenting, which was great. And now you've been able to parlay that work uh, that you were doing around Minecraft to full time with Microsoft. What's that what's that experience been like for you since you've made the move over to Microsoft full time? Yeah, it's well. Big pause. <laughs> But nobody likes a big pause in a podcast. But but that's that is literally I'm speechless. It's it's really a remarkable experience to come from twenty years of really forging my own path and finding my own way and and having the freedom and the autonomy to come up with my own ideas. I mean, goodness knows I was never I was never a rich man and I never ha- I don't have you know huge followings and stuff like that. But I just did my own thing, you know, from, from, you know, using Command and Conquer Red Alert, uh, uh, the first ever game that I taught with and, and Tomb Raider, right through to building an entire school in South Africa using a single 3D printer and a laptop. If I thought it was, you know, something I wanted to do, I went and done it. And of course, moving to Microsoft, you become part of this giant organization that has its own ideas and its mm-hmm. own paths and so on. But actually, one thing I, I found is that Certainly the team that I'm in and the people that I'm surrounded by have much the same vision. They just want genuinely, you know, like good people that want the the same things that I do. Um, We want technology put in the hands of children in creative, meaningful, relevant, real world ways. And so I actually end up with a lot of the same autonomy. So I've really, I've really loved it. It's been an eye opener, though. I mean, going from working alone to having that engine back because that's what let's face it microsoft as an organization is just a huge engine of of weight and might and power and Mm -hmm. you know we all have a duty to use that weight and might and power in the right way and hopefully i'm 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 on my way to doing that now you did you did say very briefly and i want to touch on this for just a second you said you taught using command and conquer I did. I did. Uh, so Okay. I, so those of us who are listening, those of you who don't know what Command and Conquer is, let me see if I can get this right. It's basically a resource building battle game where you have to mine resources, build up your armies and either defend your base or take a position with another base. Uh, but how do you teach around that? Yeah. So, I mean, it, for me, it's all about First of all, what are children doing and playing, engaged in, and so on, and therefore can we get them into it? And and I actually learned with Command and Conquer. So um, I was terrible at history, terrible at geography. My history teacher would tell you I wouldn't know that I wouldn't know the difference between Russia and France on a map uh, back when I was learning about. You know, we did the Third Reich and World War Two, and you know, in school as as many do as part of world history. And um, and I was just terrible at it. And then something switched, you know, back in my school days, I got Command and Conquer Red Alert on the PlayStation 1. And the idea is you you, you command either the Allies, uh, mm. which would be your Britain, France, Germany, etc., or the Russians at the time, the Soviet Union. And the idea was that there was a, an alternative World War II history where the Soviets um, created what I think effectively was the war. And so you either become them or you... And, and therefore, you either conquer Europe one place at a time, one country, one area, etc. Or you you defend it, liberate it, etc. And so I 
I just got so into that game when I was younger. I just played it to death. And and so and so somebody could say to me, where's Greece? And I could point it out on a map. Where's Trieste? Because yesterday, last night, I conquered or I liberated Trieste on the Italian border, um, on the North Italian border. And I could, I could just go, oh, it's there. And I remember at the time asking my mum for a Times map. I saw this map in a, in a store and it was mm-hmm. this beautiful big map of Europe. And I was like, oh, mum, can I have that? So she bought it for me, I think for a birthday or something. And I put it on my wall. And by the time I left school, uh, there was not a single major town in a Europe. Then I say this, you know, <laughs> like a, it sounds really big headed, but genuinely there was lots and lots I didn't know. But man, I knew my European history and I knew my European political geography. Um, and and I passed my exams with flying cover, colours and I put it down to Command and Conquer. So when I moved into games, games-based learning as a young educator, mm-hmm. you know, sort of 15, 15 to 20 years ago, that was one of my first go-tos. I said, hey, you know, my job was to teach history and European history in particular. And I was like, hey, why don't we use Command and Conquer. And we dug out an old PlayStation 1 and we played it and it was just, the kids loved it, like literally loved it. And the same, we had the maps on the walls, we used marker pens so when the kids did a battle, whether it was a skirmish or it was part of one of the scenarios, if it was for, um, you know, an area of southern France, we we put it in, you know, we, with a pen and the kids followed this on the wall and suddenly Europe came alive. Europe geography and, and culture, it all came alive through this game. So that was where I started. Uh, uh, similar for me. I think we're contemporaries, relatively speaking, as far yeah. as, uh, you know, age and all that. I've been in education for just over 20 years now. And for me, the game that I started with, my mother was a computer teacher um, at Hillsborough School in California, and she brought home uh, an Apple computer because they allowed her to bring those things home. And she had a game there called Revolution 76. And the American Revolution for a child is, you know, you just hear about the British and the Americans. And but what what the game taught me was just how, you know, poorly overmatched the Americans were. There was no going through the game and just wiping out the British there. it, It was like you really had to survive. Like it was yeah. a game of survival. It was not a game of, oh, well, we'll just repel the British all the time and make it real easy. No, there was having to work out the debt situation because America really didn't have a whole lot of money and, and trying to negotiate with, with Spain and France and and even, you know, dealing with uh, the Canadian border and all that. I mean, there was so much in that game that that taught me, again, not just about American history, but also the players in it and just how fragile the whole thing was. And another one that I thought was great, but I can't remember the name off the top. It was a, a DOS game, and I found it actually in the Internet Archive. But it was uh, you're, you're Israel, and you're trying to defend yourself in the Middle East. And oh. you would just think, you know, that because, again, as a child growing up in the 80s, we just saw the Middle East as kind of like, you know, there was Libya and there was Iran. And then it was just like, it was just a big mess. You know, it, yeah. was, it was no distinct cultures. There was no distinct, uh, you know, it was all just seen as one. Yeah. And that game was something that really opened my eyes to the very real differences of Libya and, and Lebanon and Iraq and Syria and Jordan and how those all interplayed in this whole space as well, too. It's great how those history games or those simulators really kind of, you know, it, it, it's something that really helped me to formalize history in my mind. And even now at Microsoft, um, the Age of Empires game you oh, know, yeah. really helps to put some things into context through play as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things you, you, you nailed there was the fact that 
the news, because I remember at the time when I was originally doing the Command and Conquer Red Alert stuff, it was the first Gulf War, 1991, it would have been, um, uh, and, and onwards. And it was the first Gulf War, and we were just getting fed all that on the news. And it was just like British troops have gone into here, their oil fields are burning in Kuwait, etc. And it was just, you know, you hear it, you don't really understand it, it's a mess. But what it meant for me was that I started to pay attention, because I was like, oh, British troops are where? And start Now, I don't, I don't necessarily follow military history per se. That didn't necessarily stick with me, but it gave me the interest. And that's, I mean, if we're doing trying to do nothing else, James, we're trying to interest children in geography, history, math, science, literacy. Um, and, and that was it. I was interested. I wanted to know those things. Where is that in the world? So, you know, I moved from a times map of Europe to a times map of the Middle East. And now I'm trying to figure out where all of that is. Who knew there were so many countries out there? Yeah. And, and, and I think it's important for people to realize, too, that, that those were things that were meaningful to us. It's not that every, you know, that red alert experience is necessarily meaningful to every child as well. But what we're what we're hitting on here is that intrinsic motivation, starting with this and what can we do with it to maybe inspire or rather than just say, hey, we're going we're studying this part of history. Let's bring this in now. It's it's kind of flipping the script a lot of times where we're saying, let's start with this game, this fun experience that kids are having. Let's build you know, even from it. Uh, one of the things that I did was uh, another example was using uh, SimCity 2000 mm -hmm. rather than, you know, it's a very solo game, but really you're, you're, you're controlling all these aspects of government. I divided my fifth grade students up into the different parts of the government and we ran the city together. And so they become and, your advisors. <laughs> they become, yes. They, hey, I need tax money for the schools. Hey, I need to be able to pave the roads. Hey, I need, I need, I'm running the fire station. And then yeah. I had my, my two, my two student government kids. They basically got to be, you know, house of representatives, you know, people for government, you know, federal funding and all that stuff and, and yeah. taking out loans. I mean, it slowed the game way down. Obviously you're not blowing through years and years, but again, it's just, it, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's bringing them to the table. That, well, that's and, the and again, it takes, it takes people again from our generation to really, I think think in these ways now because we grew up with these games, right? Yeah. You can see that these aren't these awful, you know, time wasting things. They're really good things. And and I think that's where I think education miss a lot is they just feel like a game has to be coming from an educational company, quote unquote, for it to have value in a school. And it doesn't Absolutely. have to be that way, does it? No, not at all. And I think that's actually one of the I mean, you and I both know that when a game comes from an education company, it's not necessarily automatically a fail um, or a failed product, but generally it doesn't last. They don't kick in. The kids uh, will play it in school, but really not follow it up afterwards. Um, one of the, uh, the singularly the biggest successes that I've had in game-based learning, and, I, I, and sorry, games-based learning, and I've used them uh, to date now. I've used just over 140 games in over 70 countries um, worldwide, and all of those games, bar none were off-the-shelf games. Everything from Command & Conquer Red Alert back in the 90s to Assassin's Creed. Now, you know, and oh teachers God, probably listen to this thinking, Assassin's Creed? No, really, oh. it's it's super deep for education. Lovely, beautiful, immersive, uh, engaging. And and those games are just fantastic. And, and it doesn't, you know what? Ubisoft never once, you know, the, the company that developed uh, the Assassin's Creed, they don't claim to be making this for education. Oh, sure, they've made some some uh, sort of education-style tourism modes and stuff like that, but they're not an education company. They're a game company. Well, and as you alluded to it, with Assassin's Creed, when uh, Notre Dame burned, oh, that yeah, it, it's it's Ubisoft 
who really had recently done the work to get down to the brick level of of scanning and historically archiving the church mm-hmm. that a lot of these people now, these, these, these restorative architects and these designers are coming in saying, well, where do we start? Where are our plans? Ubisoft has done the work. It's all, it, I mean, you can brick walk by brick right now, but they've, but they have done it brick. Yeah. Literally brick by brick. They scan the entire place. So you can see exactly what it should have looked like, I guess, in the time period that the game takes place, but you know, around the French revolution, but still, it gives you something to start with because the church really hasn't changed all that much dramatically, except for, you know, add-ons or whatever. No. And the great thing about that was as well, from a design perspective, as in literally game modeling design, it was made brick by brick. So it was scanned. Then it was made because what they found was that it was such a unique building that to try and just make the right shape and then texture it with a skin just didn't work. So what they ended up doing was giving their designers literally bricks and panels of wood and bolts and they said just go make it and they made the entire thing digital brick by digital brick which means if it's you know it's been burned down and and there's now a restoration project they can reverse engineer that and they can take away all of the pieces that were destroyed in the burn you know the fire leave them with what's left and think about rebuilding and redesigning from there so it's a remarkable tool and it was a games engine it was never designed for that but it, it happens to be useful for that so yeah there's a real magic to that. And, and I think that's something, too, that Ameri- as Americans, we don't appreciate. You appreciate this a lot more as Europeans because you have buildings that are 1,000, 2,000 years old that are still being used today. Whereas if we have a building that's over 50 years old, we have a tendency to tear it down and start all <laughs> over. But a lot of people don't realize these cathedrals, these, these giant cathedrals didn't get built in five years or 10 years or 20 years or 50 years or sometimes they took two to 300 years to complete generations of families would work on these things. So Mm -hmm. you didn't just have one person who you could go to, who was the, I guess, designer and say, Hey, what do I got to do with it? They might've been dead for 120 (laughs) years. So, you know, even having that level of, of, um, uh, having that level of, uh, being able to go back, I guess now and look at this from a construction standpoint, the value in that, I mean, it's almost like it could just be its own project in and of itself. Take the game out of it and just make, you know, these educational walkthroughs of some of these buildings. I mean, it's, it's oh, absolutely. And this is where our kids are going. I mean, when our kids leave school, this is where they're going. They're going into architecture, construction. They're going into urban planning. Um, I mean, and that's just, of course, some of them, they're going into even the digital side. If you think, wow, it's just games though. But it's like those kids that made those games, those, those students that then went on to become um, postgraduates that are now working for companies like Ubisoft in France and Canada, for example, this is what they're doing. So that the the merit of what we're trying to teach them in schools ends up there. That's you know. So a lot. If, if you're thinking, but how does this translate to you know the maths that I'm doing or the STEM that I'm doing or the or the literacy that I'm doing? It translates not just in the school system, but it goes beyond that into quite literally their career. And I have to ask, because I see in your screen in the background, those of you who are listening to the podcast can't hear this. Is that City Skylines? It's not. It's a game oh. called it's a game called Foundation, where you build, I literally bought it today, and it's a game called Foundation, where you build a medieval city, and it grows organically. You make decisions about who you want in your city, then you give regions, you know, like residential or deforestation, reforestation, and then the village just grows, and you just watch it grow. It's wonderful. 
well, I, I asked that just because I, I love city builders. SimCity was my first one. And, but, you know, we were just talking about even just the simulations, right? The kids are sometimes mm -hmm. stepping into. If you don't know City Skylines, it is oh, it gorgeous. Take, take SimCity and just expand on it to the, the, it, the finite, minute details of. Mm -hmm. Anything city planning, it is fabulous. But foundations, I'm going to have to definitely check that out because I love city builders. I even have one that's, uh, <laughs> this is going to sound funny. It, it, it is one that takes place in a Soviet era, like, you know, planned community where you have to build out a Soviet era planned community. And, and again, brutalist building, architecture. Yeah, but building around communist ideals. So again, understanding oh, really? communism and understanding like the fact, you know, the importance of factories and, you know, the, the messaging that, it, it, you know, in a communist community versus, you know, in SimCity, it's built as a Western type of capitalist. Yes, of like, yeah, ca capitalist so democracy. Yeah, so there's even differences in that. Um, and there's a there's a there's a quote. Uh, somebody just popped up a message here from Twitch, and I just want to read it really quickly. The sooner parents and educators embrace letting kids be the content experts who lead the adults through the gaming landscape instead of the old ways of adults being the only architects of spaces in which learning happens, the sooner everyone will be maximizing the potential of virtual fields. Absolutely. Yeah. I think if I, if I might comment on that, I think there's, there's two things immediately went through my mind while you were reading that, James. The first is we have to start looking at digital spaces as real as real spaces we i think we still struggle to realize that what's going on on that screen over there is as real or as important i mean it's a thing it's coded there is there it's not grass i can touch but it's grass there's rocks there's trees there's coal there's gold deposits there's like it's in there and yes it's a simulation but it's a digital space within which i will probably sink many many hours of my time now why would those hours that i'm willing to give to that simulation be any less important than the hours that i might go out and skateboard or bmx or shopping even um simply because we live a you know x number of hours on this planet and i will give some of them to this and our children are no different when our children go into digital environments they're in spaces that consume them, they engage them, they believe in them, they think they are a soldier today or a fireman today or a dinosaur hunter today. And 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 those those spaces are or should be considered platforms of some degree of at least mental reality. Um, and I, there's all sorts of conversations we could go into about screen time and, and all that kind of stuff, but, but while they're in there, let them be, I mean, I know that just this week I put a tweet out that the United Nations has recognized children's rights within the digital space. Now that's huge. Really? That's the, yeah, just the United Nations have now decreed that the children's rights, all, the, all of the, you, you know, the, the, the Declaration of Human Rights for Children, mm -hmm. they, they are, they are, uh, how, how, what's the wording I'm looking for? Anyway, they, they are as important inside a digital space as they are in real space. So the United Nations has recognized this. We need our education systems and our, you know, even our, our adult parenting minds to recognize that when a child loads up Minecraft, they're going into a space in which they will do and think and be and, you know, socialize. It's just as important. And once we crack that, I think, yes, suddenly we have this opportunity to say, well, while you're in there, let's help you develop X skills or learn Y knowledge, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. 
Well, I can't remember what the second um, thing was now. Well, I'll, maybe I'll maybe this is the second thing that I think it's important to the message that you're saying is not just the rights of kids in these spaces and understanding that these spaces are really important to kids. And I know we were part of a clubhouse meeting where Fiona Murphy was very big on this as well, where she said, when are we going to start engaging parents? Yeah. And, and the messaging to parents, I think, needs to be very clear here in this as well as part of that messaging around, hey, kids have rights in these spaces and they're creating and they're, and they're discovering and they're connecting because it is so often that I still hear it even today, even as online learning has become so important right now for many of our kids is the only way for many of them to learn. Telling them that what they are doing online is a waste of time. You know, yeah. they're, they're, it is so damaging for anybody to hear that the thing that they love to do, the thing that they're passionate about is a waste of time. I made bagels this morning. Did I have to make bagels? No, I could have gone to the store, bought bagels, would have saved myself probably an hour and a half of time letting dough rise and all that other stuff. But I made, it was so powerful for me to make those bagels because I yeah. made them from scratch and I got to experiment with the yeast and the salt and the flavors and all this other stuff and the time and the cooking that carries a lot of weight to me. And some people may say, well, why didn't you just go to the store? We have great, better bagels at the store. I didn't get anything out of that. It's just like with this, you know, yeah. talking about it is kids are getting something out of this that they're not getting elsewhere. Absolutely. And I, and I may think we can talk for, I mean, I've got it lying beside me. If you haven't, the, the readers at home, uh, Reality is Broken by Jane McGonigal. That's oh, yeah. one of the, the fundamental reasons we turn to play, not just digital video games, but sport and all sorts, is because our current reality is is somewhat broken. It might be that we're, you know, we're, we're ill at home with COVID. It might be that we are depressed. It might be that we've just come out of a broken relationship. It might be that we are, we have no money. And, you know, so you can't go out and go anywhere. So maybe you just game. And this is just, that's in small scale, modern context. But Jane, uh, Jane McGonagall talks about how that applies to the Roman Empire and the, and the, the, uh, the gladiatorial gladiatorial arenas and dice, the invention of dice and cards and gambling and, and all the different types of ways in which the human species has gone for gaming or gone through the gaming um, principles is generally because we're trying to change a reality that doesn't quite fit with what we need it to be that day, politically or otherwise. Um, and so I think that's really critical. And, and actually, one of the things you hit on there, James, that I'm really passionate about is we're looking at we're looking at the bigger picture. And I think, you know, a conversation like this doesn't necessarily help us to, to fix it. But this is a social issue. This is a massive social issue. When we discredit or we dismiss art creativity because, hey, GDP is really important. If our country hasn't grown by 2% GDP every year, we've failed as a nation. Never mind if you're happy or not. Just make more money, get bigger, better, faster, easier, more. And if you haven't managed that, then we've all failed. Never mind the nurses and the teachers and the happy children in play parks. Get out and work. And it's why we have two parent working families that can't afford the rent because they're too busy paying the nanny to look after their children because they've got to work. It's why we're always told we need a bigger house, a better car. And it's just, I think, and then therefore art is frivolous. Computer games, frivolous, anything that doesn't mean that we're contributing to the to the to the economy. And to go on a little bit of a rant, I discovered recently that from a from a from a Western democratic um, perspective, the illegal drugs trade is included in American GDP. If you look at the American GDP listings, the what? illegal drugs trade is included. And the reason for that is because 
laundered money through the illegal drugs trade does end up in our system. And therefore, if it ends up in our system to the tune of 3.8 billion or whatever it is, it's included. But if you look at the same list, parenting and single parenting both show up as null. Parenting, it does. So according to our government, the illegal drugs trade is contributes more to our economy than parenting. Because, hey, who cares? Who cares what we're doing with our kids as long as we get them to the other side so they can contribute themselves? And I just find, you know, that that I think we can look at it on a, a, an education level. We can look at it on a you and I can discuss it in this podcast on a esports or games based learning level. But until we actually face it as a country wide or even a, a species wide level, you know, the, 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 the idea that maths is infinitely more important than art because, hey, maths is going to help you to make money. Art's not. Mm. I just think we, we're always going to have that issue. It's funny. You, you brought up a memory. It, just that just that little conversation you had right now brought up a memory. My mother was a stay-at-home mom, right? And I remember, I think I asked my mom or I asked my dad, how much does mom make? Or mom, how much do you make? And I thought, why, you know, you're, you're taking care of me and Molly and the house and doing all the other things. Why aren't you getting something, you know, other than, other than dad is working and, you know, bringing home money to, to pay the bills. It's so funny that that as a child, that question popped in my head. And it's funny what you just said right now really sparked that memory. It's so goofy. <laughs> Mom didn't make anything, but she contributed hugely to the economy. Um, for for I was the same. I grew up with a single mom, and it was years later that I, of course, learned about this GDP thing. And I was like, "Hang on a minute! Everything my mom did to bring me to the age that I'm at, the stage that I'm at, the learning that I took shape that took shape in me, and of course now I'm contributing as a as a taxpayer, you know, working for Microsoft." That meant nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like it was really hard for me as a man to kind of hear that. But anyway, that's a different subject. Well, let's let's kind of uh, start to to transition a little bit, little bit more into where things are going right now with Minecraft. Because again, we're talking about the digital spaces and the spaces you're developing here. Um, and again, you you come from again now brought into the uh, the Microsoft realm to help mm -hmm. them try to develop these spaces. And I know we've talked in the past about community builds or competitive builds, but it seems like now that some really smart people, you included, are getting involved more and more into the Minecraft uh, world, it is something that is much bigger than we ever thought, you know, five, 10 years ago when it started of what this potentially could be. I mean, even now with say, you know, NASEF is doing Farmcraft and, and the yeah. competitiveness around even that, uh, the Rube Goldberg competitions, is this exceeding what you were thinking? Or is it just now you now that you're with Microsoft, you see like, okay, now we can do all these things that I've been thinking about for years. Honestly, I think we've been really slow to, I think, generally, I think everyone from the community, and I, these things are organic, and but it's a decade now. You know, it's in fact, it's more than a decade since Minecraft landed with us. And, and I picked it up in alpha, like it, it appeared, and we weren't even sure, like, if it was complete, and it wasn't really a proper game, and then it was taken away, and then it came back again. It's a very strange sort of history, at the, t the very, very, very earliest history. And then it was beta, and so on, and then it was launched officially. But I remember picking it up, um, super early and just knowing instantly this is the game changer and the reason it was the game changer and other games have somewhat followed suit and there are certainly some coming that will mm. definitely follow suit and compete on a very high level 
um, is, and we can maybe talk about those later if you wish, but, but, but for a Minecraft perspective, I, the reason it's the game changer is because we, we suddenly had the ability to decide for ourselves what we wanted our functions and mechanics to be, what our structures and our environment would look like, what our narrative should be. I wasn't just following someone else's narrative. I wasn't just, you know, even if it was choose your own adventure or, you know, some sort of game that I was playing back then, it, suddenly for the first time, everyone talks about open world games, Red Dead Redemption, which I absolutely love, but it's not oh truly God. open world. Skyrim. I just love looking for animals. Yeah, me I, too. I, I take photographs of animals. Yeah. <laughs> And then, I just don't ask, to heck with the story i'm going hunting for birds i'm going yeah. bird watching and then people are, i found out i was in the middle of a, a raid the other day with a friend of mine and we were headed back for the raid and we had the, the guy the prisoner tied up on the back of the horse and i saw a, a tortoise and i'd never seen one before so i was like pulled the horse to, a, to an immediate <laughs> stop and i got off and there's gunshot going off around me and i'm walking along slowly trying to take a picture of a tortoise and my mate was like what are you doing it's like I've seen a tortoise. I've never seen one before. And then I got back on my horse and fled. But um, but you stopped for the photograph because that's important. Right. Here's the thing, and that, and that is immersion. That's when you're like, that's when you're in it. But but for Minecraft, suddenly you know, Red Dead Redemption, this open world, and it, it you know to a large degree it is. But I can't create. It, it, I can't decide where to put down a home or a village or decide that I want barrels to sit there beside that because it looks really nice. I can't decide where the animals are going to be. Whereas, um, and you can say that about so many different games. Skyrim, I also loved. Uh, the Witcher, but you're still, The Witcher's fantastic and immersive and broad, but you're still following someone else's narrative. Mm -hmm. What I love about Minecraft is that there is no narrative. You literally decide. And that has, over the last 10 years, slow though I think it has been, it's taken us a long time. But the richness of Minecraft is now that it's not even your functions, your features, your, you know, I want to do a function that does this, or I want redstone to make that door open, or I want my castle to be here. It's suddenly children can start looking at scoreboards, timers. Um, they can look at uh, loot and randomization and if then statements, they're suddenly like, if I do this, then this happens or else. And suddenly Minecraft is becoming quite possibly one of the most powerful and simplest to use game making platforms out there. And I think people haven't quite grasped that yet. It's not just a game. It's not even just an educational tool. It's a it's a game making and educational tool maker. That's mm. the beauty of it. I, I remember, uh, I think it was 2010, was it, no, 2011, sorry. I was, so we're talking, oh gosh, we're talking 10 years ago. Oh my mm -hmm. gosh, time flies. I was in uh, Forreston, Illinois, which is southwest of Rockford, about 45 minutes, little farm town. And they had me move out there to, to do a one-to-one -one iPad deployment. That was my thing I could do. I could build a really solid, you know, one-to-one -one program with the right messaging and the right goals and all of this stuff. Cool. I said, one of the things I want to make sure is that the kids have the ability to control. We'll, we'll give them the apps that they need for class, but we also want to allow them the opportunity to learn in this digital space, to create, to choose their own apps, to make decisions based off that with only 16 gigabytes of, of space. So they had limitations, yeah. of course. And uh, if I had had, you know, if the school district had done what they wanted to do, which, which I got my way, because I said, I'm not moving all the way from Chicago out here unless I get to do what I want which is a great leverage, you know, right. thing, by the way. Um, they would have just had, you know, their basic apps. 
when we opened it up, I started to notice pods of kids sitting around the school. Before school, they'd sit outside because this was a farm town. There wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't a Starbucks, there wasn't a McDonald's, there wasn't free Wi-Fi. The, the library was closed most days and it was open. The kids didn't have internet access at home. So they were coming to school at sometimes six o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. sitting in pods outside the school, waiting for the doors to open. And I and I finally, one day I went up to a group of kids. And I said, you know, what are you all doing? It seems you're really intense on something. They said, we're all playing Minecraft. We've, yeah. we've developed, we've built these games and we can bring up to four other people into our space. So we're, we've built these games and we're playing in here. And I thought, well, that's really cool. Didn't think much of it other than until I went into my office and I said, you know, how many kids have installed Minecraft on their iPads? 99% yeah. of the student population had installed Minecraft. Now, if I had my way, I hadn't, again, I knew about Minecraft, but I didn't, you know, think about it at that time as an educational tool. Seeing kids embrace it like they were, again, they were building games, they were building social connections, they were building community. We had a, we had one student who took the initiative to build the Roman Colosseum, and then the other kids took the opportunity to uh, um, look at his Roman Colosseum and said, well, wait a second. One of the kids says, wait a second, you didn't build the tunnels. You didn't build the catacombs underneath. You didn't underneath build, for the, yeah. You built the structure on the outside. Let's build. And so they researched and did the research on to find out what was underneath. It's amazing what happens when kids take ownership of these spaces. But let me ask you this, because these spaces, I think we started talking about this a little earlier. There is a definite issue around poverty. There's a definite issue around Mm -hmm. digital divide, kids having access and not. And I've even found just in my own school district where licensing plays such an important part, but we realize that these digital spaces are also important. Is there going to become a time when these communal spaces, a space like my, you know, like Minecraft or a space like, um, you know, let's take uh, these open world games where maybe they should be free to enter versus pay to play? Because it seems like they're becoming so important as, again, a, 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 as a community tool. Yeah, I, I, I hope Every day for a time. And I know you work for a for-profit company now, so your answer might have changed. (laughs) No, 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 no. Honestly, I I think there needs to be, again, I think we need to do this on a a much wider community, social, even national level. We need government. We need organizations like Microsoft at the table. uh, We need parents, teachers, even students. I say even students, most importantly, students at the table. But I think we need to be looking at the the, the democratization of all of that stuff. Um, And I really do think that place spaces like that, whether it's virtual reality spaces or Minecraft or so on, um, should be part of an infrastructure, even at taxpayer level. Now, you're talking to us, Scott, we very socialist, we pay extra money in our taxes, so everyone can have free healthcare or free dentistry or free eye care or whatever. And we're very much about that. And But I think that model genuinely carries huge value. If I, I'd be happy to pay 10 pence extra in the pound if I knew that everyone in the country got free Wi-Fi. And I mean everyone, every child regardless had access to free Wi-Fi. I'd pay a little extra if everyone at the age of 14 was handed a device. You know, it's just like, here's your device. It's government, you know, whatever. And and not even government, maybe it's given by the government, but maybe it's Microsoft that does that. Maybe it's Apple that does that. Maybe it's, you know, I don't really care who does that. Maybe it's Google and the Chromebooks. I, I, I don't really care how it's done, but I think the democratization of our 
accessible infrastructure is massively important. And I wonder if something like COVID is going to accelerate that conversation. Because suddenly, I just put out a tweet today, um, suddenly for the first time in years, uh, in fact, in ever doing this, I'm hearing conversations on places like Clubhouse and Twitter and stuff like that, where parent, sorry, teachers are actively talking about the need to really focus on digital content. And I'm like, wow, took you long enough. And I don't mean that as a, it's not teacher's fault, um, individual teacher's fault. It's a systematic issue that we've been, you know, stuck in for decades and decades and decades. But suddenly teachers are finding themselves having real conversations about, and these are teachers, I say this as teachers, I'm listening to teachers who would never normally have had this conversation suddenly going, I actually really need to think about how I put together good, meaningful digital content for my children. Yeah. Yes. And I think that we need to democratize that entire process from internet access. I mean, I think it's astounding that in countries like the UK, the fifth largest economy in the world, we're all still paying a fortune for internet. I pay, I don't know, 50, what's that, 70, 70 bucks a month to get relatively decent internet from a cable company. I mean, I can and it doesn't bother me, but there's people out there that can't do that. There's people yeah. out there that don't have that option. They don't have that money. It's like, so what do they do? Do they just not get online? Does that mean that that side of that world, both educationally, healthcare, whatever, does that mean that's just not available to them? That's wrong. That's like, that's wrong. So, yeah. I, I, I see it when I go out to the West of Ireland as well, too. You know, you get into some of these remote and rural areas of these countries that are, again, trying to modernize. And again, Ireland is, is a tax haven for a lot of high-tech companies, especially where, you know, especially around Cork area, Dublin, they have a lot of these companies that come in. But again, you get to some of these rural parts of the country. And again, it is, it, you're, you know, sometimes at best, you're getting 3G service, you know, yeah. hopefully. And, uh, it, but what's, what's interesting, you're talking about the democratization of the space. This just happened even today, where my girlfriend's son, um, and, 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 I, and I'm not... I'm saying this very carefully just because I don't believe that there was anything to this, but there's, there's these, there's these companies that allow a free for all. They allow anything to be said. There is no, you know, nothing ever taken care of. Nothing is ever um, halted. You know, the harassment is able to, to flourish and take place and nobody does anything. Yeah. On the other side, you get these companies that will ban somebody and they're not sure why. All of a sudden, they'll just get an email that says, you are banned from this space. There is no appeals process. There is nothing yeah. else. You have been banned. In my mind, the democratization of this space requires that there has to be, again, it's not just a company saying, sorry, you can't be on our network. That's it. If we, it, we have to find some way for there to be uh, a, an opportunity to present evidence. I mean, it, it's so hard for some of these kids, especially kids who are so socially connected through these spaces to suddenly have that ripped away and not told why. Yeah, and I think my my initial response to that is that, again, talking bigger picture, but that is because it's not a democratized space. That's right. because it's still private. It's still profit-led. It's largely led by, um, you know, largely white-faced corporations um, where the either the gender balance is still not addressed, the race balance is still not addressed, or imbalance is still not addressed, um, and so I think we need to deal. I think we need to deal with that. And again, you know, it's almost like when does that start? Maybe COVID pushes something like that. Maybe we need to be having harder 
stronger, louder conversations with these companies and the and our government about these things, you know, not just in America and Britain, but across Europe and across Africa and so on. I remember I, a story that I sometimes um, talk about is the first time I visited South Africa and I, I was working down there in schools and I was visiting all these schools as this a special guest and they were playing cultural music for me. It was beautiful. And they were surrounding me with, whenever I got there, they were wearing their cultural dress, etc. And then I sat in on a history class and they were teaching the uh, Panzer Division, uh, Panzer tank movements for, of World War II and how they had managed to circumnavigate the Maginot Line, which meant that the French defence was pointless because they'd basically gone, the, the Germans had gone round it to the mm. south. Um, and and when I said to the teacher at the end of that, why why are you teaching that? You know, I, I was like, I'm really interested in why you're teaching German World War II history um, uh, in or European World War II history to Zulu children in this little tiny school in, you know, way outside Johannesburg. And she said, because it's on the curriculum. Oh. And I said, yeah, but... Yeah, but, you know, like, where does it fit in terms of relevance and, and meaning and, and, and culture? And what will the children do with that? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying for a second that children shouldn't learn about those things, but they could just do that on the internet, that particular subject. Where's the relevance? And she was, and she literally, she got it. She got what I was saying. She said, there isn't any. I just have to teach it for X number of hours per month or X number of hours per term or whatever. And I just remember thinking that, we're in trouble if we can't speak up about stuff like that. If we're still teaching black Zulu African children about white, you know, um, European wars, I, I think there's something we, there's a, there's a great imbalance. And I think that small example um, is accelerated or, 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 or amplified in other places around the world where we're not, we're not democratizing education and we're not making it relevant at the same time to women or, or or race or religion, you know, religious tolerance and, and stuff, but we're not doing that. Well, let's even take language. I mean, yeah. you know, let's look at, let's look at our own spheres, Scotland and Ireland. Many people don't, many people don't realize that in Ireland, there, there is their own language. Scotland has their own uh, language as well too. And most people wouldn't realize that. Yeah. But it was, it was the British who for the longest time as part of the educational system said you cannot speak irish you cannot speak this uh, the, you know the scottish gaelic you can't use that there was and and there's efforts now to re i guess you could say redemocratize but as you said it's not fast enough it's it's still too slow it's still it feels to me at least and what i'm hearing you say you can correct me if i'm wrong it still feels slow it still feels like again there's a there's a sense of relevancy that a lot of people are not connecting on, and it, it does it isn't just game related. It's it's everything related, as you just pointed out. Zulu kids yeah. learning about World War II history. How does that help them identify with themselves? Identify with South Africa? Identify with their place in the world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was within a hundred years that you could be hung in Scotland for speaking your own language because the British government decreed that it was illegal because if you were speaking your own language, they couldn't tell what you were saying in public conversation, right. etc. cetera. Um, and then we started teaching it only in the 19... And you were allowed to speak it after the 1960s, but it only began to be taught in schools in the late... Well, it, you were allowed to teach it after the 1990s, I think 1999. Um, mm. And even now it's super fringe. Like schools just don't. You know, it's like you don't you don't do Gaelic. Is it bizarre to find yourself in a Scottish school learning about French, German, or Spanish? Those are your three choices, and I think even that's bizarre. You know, it's like even that's not necessarily relevant. I remember a great conversation about um, 
a, a great example of a conversation around language was a little boy that I worked with. I worked with his parents. His parents basically got in touch and said, my kid's about to be thrown out of school. We're seriously thinking of moving to homeschooling. He's having major issues with one of his teachers in particular, which is leading to really bad behavior, um, et cetera. Could you have a word with him? And I did a lot of workshops back then about working with children to manage their behavior through digital environments, et cetera. So we had a word with this kid, brilliant. Like genuinely, he's going to be super successful as a young man. This was many, many years ago. So he must be, I'd say he was uh, 18, 19 now. Um, but he was super young and he was very early in his secondary school. And he was having, th this, the issue he was having was with the secondary school language teacher. Mm -hmm. And she said, I just, so we spoke to the teacher and she said, I just can't get him to let, he just doesn't care for French. He's rude. He thinks all the French rude words are the ones he should be saying out loud and da, 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 and he disrupts <laughs> other kids with these rude words, etc. Um, he does a French impression where he doesn't quite say the words, but he says them in a French, almost caricature way. And it's sure. it's offensive, that kind of stuff. And she said, I'm just, he's out. I, I don't want to teach him. He's out. He's out. And uh, so I got working with him online. And it turns out that he didn't speak French, but he did speak a little Macedonian, quite a lot of Japanese, and he spoke some German. And when I found when I found that out, I said to him, why do you speak all these languages? Because he was just telling me, oh, coal in Minecraft, coal in German is, and then he would tell me, or in, Jap in Japanese, when they thank you for giving you stuff, they say, and then he would give me this Japanese piece. And I said to him, why is that? And he said, oh, because most of the people I play with are, uh, he said, I play with this group and most of them are either Japanese, we've got one Macedonian girl on the team. And he said, and we've got some Germans as well. It was relevance. It had nothing mm -hmm. to do with the language barrier. It had nothing to do with whether or not he knew or didn't know or wanted to know or didn't want to know French. It was that French wasn't relevant. And right. I think the relevance of the education was critical. And so once we'd surpassed that, we then went into the teacher and said, you know, he actually speaks Japanese. <laughs> and um, and his relationship with it, I mean, I, I, the, the end result was that he couldn't, they just moved him out of French and said, fine, you know, we're going to move you out of languages. Um, and he's he must be 18, 19 now. Um, I, I'd love to check in on him again. But, um, but it was a great intervention because the realization was he's a clever kid. This is just entirely irrelevant to him. Let's yeah. think about that as a school, you know. And I think this is a great segue into where we're at now, too, is as as people are coming into this space, as whether it's private companies, nonprofits, people wanting to work, because, again, esports is largely around the youth. It's largely around those, you know, nine, ten, you know, say, well, shoot, I've even got elementary kids who want to. You know, we're, we're using Among Us. Uh, thank you, Angelique Giannis, for some of your ideas. We're using Among Us as a way to teach persuasive speaking, public yes. persuasive speaking. Um, you know, you make Brilliant. your case and why you think this is and wait your turn and all these other things. Starting that with elementary school kids. In fact, on Friday, I played with, it was ages uh, for, uh, from six years old to 12 years old. So we had, where else in school do you get six to 12 year olds playing together? Very rarely, right? But conversing, uh, debating, <laughs> negotiating, conversing, seeing across age groups that the, yeah. the the first grader has just important of opinion as the fifth grader does. But it seems that as and you had some really good points. We were involved in a discussion earlier this week, and you had some really good points that there really needs to be a conscious decision 
as people are coming into this and wanting to work with school-aged children, you have to decide really early, are you going to be for-profit or not? And if you're going to be for-profit or not, that needs to be very clear. But you also need to, I think, really be um, specific around what it is that you're trying to get out of this space. Is it for the likes, for the hits, for the money, or is it really being a student-centered organization that's putting kids first? And I feel like there's a lot of people who just, they want to do good things for kids. One of the messages I heard not too long ago was a company who wanted to give our kids something. And we asked questions about data privacy and they said, wow, it's really hard to give away something for free to kids. We want them to use, but yes, it is. There's a reason mm-hmm. we have firewalls. There's a reason we, we set up these barriers to entry in schools and working with kids because there's a, there's a social unsaid, if it's not written in, it's an unsaid or should be known that there's an unsaid social contract in working with schools and working with school age kids. Right. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, you and I had this discussion uh, earlier in the week, James, and I said to you, maybe I'm just a uh, hopeless romantic in this, in, on this stage, but I am, I am deeply driven by ethics. I mean, even just the negotiation I had with Microsoft to join the team took months and months and months because I needed them to know that this is how I work. This is what I'm giving up. This is where I need to go with this. If I don't have this autonomy and this level of freedom, I don't know if I can do what you need me to do. And mm. and even now when I work in the realms of Microsoft, and uh, sorry, Minecraft with them, I'm still all about pushing the 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 relevance and the meaning before we even talk to, yeah, I don't, I'm not driven by metrics. I, I, I mean, ultimately someone wants me to be, but maybe they're betting on the wrong guy because because <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll sell Minecraft for you, but mm. not because, not for the sake of selling Minecraft, not for the sake of driving that, those numbers. I'll sell it because I can genuinely make it work for children and teachers and parents, et cetera. And that's where you'll get your results from me. And, 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 and if that ever ceases to be the case or if it's not what you're looking for, hey, I, let's be open about that. And so I am hopelessly driven and my, my, my you know, staff and team and, and my bosses in Microsoft all know me for that. Um, but, but when it comes to the esports side of this, we as adults, and um, there are some uh, wonderful, wonderful adults in the space, but we as adults owe it to our children not to take this space from them and then sell it back to them. Because that's what, mm-hmm. it's their space. They own it. They make this up. They'll game for themselves, you know. Um, and I think it would be fundamentally wrong of us to step into the space and go, great idea, everyone. Now we're going to take it. We're going to set up land, a big giant land competition, and then we're going to charge you to uh, to play in it. Oh, and by the way, you need to use X brand mouse, which is what, 300 quid, and you need to use this keyboard, and it needs to show in the background because that's going to be 170. I don't care. Like I don't care if anybody knows what kind of keyboard that is. It doesn't bother me um, because I think we're not doing anyone a favor, and certainly not those who can't or potentially can if the chair they're sitting in is, and you'll notice you probably can't see the brand of my chair, which is on purpose. Um, if the chair I'm sitting in or the child is sitting in is not necessarily, um, uh, is not the brand that's meant for the team or everyone agrees to stick to this mouse or this headset or whatever. Now, don't get me wrong. Businesses like this and, and fields like esports, etc., also require that to be a thing, but not but not the center of the thing, not the reason for the thing. The reason we are all here is because we want our children to connect for social and emotional, um, that social and emotional bond that we desperately know they need in this time of really struggling um, uh, during COVID. And so I think 
the conversation we were having was where organizations are coming in, fine, be for profit, but within the profit, within that sphere of being for profit, do the right thing. Would you start with the right morals and the right ethics, get your vision and your values assigned and see if you're a not-for-profit. Be loud, be bold, be like, take risks, do do all the wonderful things that you say you're going to do um, rather than just, because I think a lot of, a lot of the issues with, e, especially esports, game-based learning is slightly different, but a lot of the issues with esports uh, is around the conversations I hear. We go and I join a conversation and they say, hey, we're going to be discussing the importance of esports and education today. And I join that chat and all I hear about is, well, we need to grow our audience to 100,000 because we need to sell X number of tickets for the event that's coming in November. And we and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought we were here to talk about the importance of esports and education. If the only thing you've got to add to this is that you need another 100,000 tickets sold, I'm out. Um, and... I just think that's where I'm at with this. So I, I totally agree with you. In the esports space, we need ethics, we need morals, we need vision, we need, and we need to be true to that. And that means being brave. That means next time someone says, "Hey, we've got this big event, and the um, and the sponsor is." an oil company, for example, mm -hmm. we can go, actually, that's not a great message for our kids. No, thanks. Not this time. And believe me, they'll soon change. They'll soon go, oh, actually, we'll change sponsor if it matters that much. Yes, it does matter that much. I think we need to be really brave about that. Yeah, it's also okay to say no. As you're saying, it's, that's yeah, simple. I think that's a simple thing. It's, you know... <sighs> I get told this quite a bit. And, and if she's listening right now, she's probably laughing. Um, you know, there, there's a, there's a time when every, you know, you're the ugly duckling. Nobody wants to talk to you. Nobody wants anything to do with you. And then they start to see the value. They start to see the likes, they start to see the interest. This, this was, I was talking about esports. you know, five, six years ago. And I go to a conference and people thought I was talking about Spanish sports. Yeah. Or they thought, you know, they didn't know what they were getting into. They thought it was, I was going to talk about gamification. And I'm like, no, gamification is something completely different. Go go to a gamification session if you want to learn about gamification. Yeah. But, you know, now you're the pretty person. You're the one everybody wants to date. They're, they want to take you to the dance. Yeah. Just because everybody's coming to you saying, can I take you to the dance? You don't have to say yes to everybody. There is going to be those people, those groups, those organizations where you can politely and professionally say no. And, and I am very clear as to why I even uh, recently had a podcast interview set up with somebody. And when I was doing a little more research into the person, I call, I said, I need you to call me right away. I have some questions. And there were some questionable things that I saw. Nothing that, that after conversation I was worried about, but it's, it is, this is intentional. And again, for a lot of educators, we, you know, we're, we don't have, we're not CEOs of multi-million dollar companies. We're not making, you know, hundred thousand dollars a year or, or, you know, have, you know, hedge funds and 401ks and all this stuff. The only yeah. thing a lot of educators have is a professional reputation. And when you partner with an educator who again is expecting things to be on the up and up, because again, there's again, whether written or not social contracts with our schools, because we know how important it is to work with kids. We have to be, honest and transparent and ethical when we are working with kids. It, there's nothing worse you can do to an educator than to put them in a situation where their professional ethics are compromised, because that sometimes is the only thing that they have that is of value other than their opinion Absolutely. Um, outside yeah. of, out of outside of their teaching world. That's it. 
at a lot of people, I know there's a lot of edges celebrities out there who want to talk about all the great work they did 20, 30 years ago in the classroom. And they've been, they've been speaking on it for the last 20, 30 years, but I, I give a lot more credit to a lot of these people who get up at conferences and say, I've been doing this for two to three years and I'm still teaching. I'm still yes. in it. I'm, I haven't so you know, I still do the regular day job and I also do this thing as well too, because I love oh, it. Yeah. And again, it's because it, I know passion only takes you so far, but that professional reputation is to me is the paramount number one pinnacle of anything that I protect. And I get very mad. I will say mad. Yeah. when it gets potentially compromised. And I think there's two things in that, James. I think the first is that, that when all of this is said and done, when esports fades from the, the, the light, not that it will go away or it will stop, be, it will, it, everything's got its growth period and then eventually there'll be something else. It'll be a new technology or whatever, but esports will keep going, but something else will take the attention of, you know, the, the, the money men and the, um, and the event organizers and so on. When all of that is gone, you will still be there and your children will still be there. And the work that you did and the impact that you made over the period of that, it will all still be there. And you didn't do it for the money and you didn't do it for the for the fame and you didn't do it for the, 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 the 100,000 followers on Twitter or whatever. Um, you did it because, and that takes me to point two, if, and I know this is going to sound so cliche and people will be like, yeah, yeah, surely, but Genuinely, every single thing I do from the, every Minecraft block that I place in a world that teaches children about Pompeii or, you know, whatever. And I know, James, you've seen some of my, my work. Um, I put a huge amount of time and effort into the worlds that I design and the lessons that come with them oh, or yeah. the esports experiences or the events. When I stand on stage, every word that I say, yes, I'm talking to teachers. Yes, I'm talking to parents. Yes, I'm talking to event organizers. And, and in this case, I don't know who we're, we're talking to on this podcast, but I know that it will be a largely adult audience. But everything I do and everything I see, I am ultimately doing and saying for children. If this doesn't translate, if, if the work that you're doing and the things that you're trying uh, to do with your life are not ultimately translating to children in the education sphere. Maybe you need to be somewhere else, and that's okay. That that's okay. But if but but if but it's not about it's it it, it has to translate to children. It has to. Um, otherwise, go do something else, and that's all right. And and I actually think that's a perfect way to wrap. Uh, this up today. Um, I, you know, I, it's funny, I, I did, I used to call these in an in interview with, uh, I just, I don't know if any pe people who are looking at the title, this is a conversation. And I feel that it's better to have a conversation than an, an interview feels like more I'm asking questions. And I feel like we've had more open dialogue. It's a, it's a mind, swi uh, mind mm. switch a little bit. But uh, Stephen, we could talk about a whole lot of other things, and I'm sure we will in the future, my friend. Um, yeah. I am still hopefully, fingers crossed, will be making my way to Edinburgh in the next year. Uh, we'll see what happens with COVID. But um, You have uh, a place to stay and a, and a bottle of whiskey waiting. I, I love that part. <laughs> and funny, uh, once I get off of this, I know what, either my son or my oldest daughter will be at this computer that I'm sitting at right now to play Minecraft. So I'll just say, hey, I was just talking with a guy who that's his job. And, Excellent. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Stephen Reed, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for being a guest on the Academy of Esports podcast. Wonderful. Thanks very, very much. And thanks to everyone listening. Uh, I look forward to seeing and connecting with you in the future.
That will do it for this week on the Academy of Esports. I've been your host, James O'Hagan. Esports are organized competitive video games allowing schools to redefine their athletic culture, diversify opportunities for student participation, promote good physical and mental health, increase collegiate scholarship pathways, and play games. We can never forget the importance of play. The mission of the Academy of Esports is to support these ideals. The vision of the Academy of Esports is for all students to experience the fun and joy of playing competitive video games. You may follow me on Twitter, at Jim O'Hagan. That's at J-I-M-O-H-A-G-A-N. And through the Academy of Esports account, at T-A-O Esports. It's a great way to get the latest blog posts, podcast episodes, and news coming out of esports and education. And remember, you can continue your engagement by going to www.taoesports.com. You can also connect through Facebook at www.facebook.com slash taoesports. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to our time again next week. <laughs>